Robert Louis Stevenson tells of a storm, tells of a storm that was caught, or that caught rather a vessel of the rocky coast that threatened to drive both the vessel and the passengers to destruction. Amid terror, one man, one daring man, contrary to the orders that were given, went to the deck and made a dangerous passage to the pilot's house where he saw the steerman. And the steerman was at his post holding the wheel unwaveringly and inch by inch turning the ship out once more to sea. The pilot saw the watcher and smiled. Then the daring passenger went back below, went down deck and gave a note of cheer to the other crew members. And this is what he said, I've seen the face of the pilot. He smiled, all is well. Isn't that reassuring and comforting words? Amid this danger that they face, the look of the pilot's face, that calmness, that smile, that peace, the crew member who saw him could report back and say, hey, all is well because we're in good hands, in other words. And this is what he was trying to reflect. Well, this is a springboard into what I want to talk to us about or what I want to speak on this morning in terms of Christ being our help and how we ought to feel when we look towards Jesus Christ as our helper throughout the ages. We launch into John, 1 John chapter 2, as we're making our way through this passage and through this book, where John starts to address the members, address the churches, supposedly those who are in Asia Minor, and he's continuing this argument that he was giving them in chapter 1 in regards to sin, salvation, fellowship. And again, of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, he was refuting the erroneous teachings that were creeping into the church, and members were gravitating to these teachings, and some were holding on to them as well as the teachings of Christ, and they can't both coexist at the same time in the same sense. So John talks to them about their advocate, a word that we see pop up early in the passage, and who he is, what this advocacy means, and we're going to get into all of those intricate details. But John writes, my little children, very interesting way of addressing adults. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that, in order that, for the reason, for this purpose, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous, or Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
Father God, help us as we embark in these words, these few passages, these few verses of your word. God, I pray that hearts will be opened and we'll have receptive hearts to your word, to your preaching, including myself, Lord, that we will leave this place not the same way in which we came, whether we're saved or not. For those that aren't saved, Lord, I pray through your word, the power of your word and the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, that today will be the day, a brand new year that you have graciously granted to them, that you, they will become new creatures in this new year and in the dawn of this new year. Lord, we ask that Christ will be magnified. We ask that Christ will be elevated and lifted up. And Father God, I pray that at the end of this sermon, Lord, that we as believers and all who are hearing and will hear these words will continue to hold him as our help throughout the ages, through the years that we have gone through thus far and through this previous year. And even in this year to come, despite the unknown nature that it holds, we will rest assured just like that crew member because we know the pilot, we know the captain, and everything that is in his hands is safe and secure. God, may your word penetrate our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Christ, our help through the ages. And the first thing that I want to highlight in terms of Jesus Christ being our help and how he helps us and how we can be a part, not just be a part, but our role in him helping us is renounce sin, all kinds, all manner, all sort of sin. As we see in the first few verses, in fact, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you, John says, so that you do not sin. And as I mentioned, we see here John uses a very interesting term to address adults, an expression he's using for the very first time in this passage, and that is, my little children. And this isn't the only time we're going to see it. We'll see it again six other times as we make our way through or even if you're reading through this entire epistle of, of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you'll see it occur multiple times. So why is he using these terms? Why is he talking to grown people as though they're ch- and addressing them as children? Well, he's doing so, and this is a term of affection. It's a term that sees John and portrays John as their spiritual father. And my beloved children would be another way of putting it. The address is one, again, of an affectionate father to children, to people who he loves dearly. The apostle addresses the saints in this manner, in this way, because of their regeneration, because they are believers They are saved by God's grace. They're a part of God's family. And he's addressing them as though they're newborn babes, as Peter would put it. 
But why would he address them as newborn babes? Well, he wants them to realize that they're still weak. Even if they have grown in their spiritual walk, they have not attained. They have not, they're not there yet. And he doesn't want them to get this preconceived notion that I don't need anything else in my spiritual life to grow more and more. This is it. This is where I am, and there's no more growth that is needed. So he wants to put that image in their mind that you are still needing to grow. There's still growth that is needed. And I'm addressing you as babes because you need to remember that growth is always a necessity in the spiritual walk. Jesus Christ uses very same term in in John chapter 13, verse 33, in addressing the disciples. So that is why he calls them children. He is looking to them as his own beloved, dear, sincere little ones who are, he's trying to mature and growing the faith. But at the same time, he wants them to realize, hey, spiritually, you're not there yet. And I want you to remember that. There's still growing spiritually that needs to happen in your life. And then he tells them why he's writing them. So he addresses them dearly, sincerely, and said, I'm writing these things to you. What are these things? Things pertaining to the holiness of God and the character of God that we saw in 1 John 1, verse 1 to 4. He's writing these things, the things that he wrote to them about fellowship. What does fellowship look like with the believers? What does fellowship look like with God himself, the triune God? He's writing these things to them, the things pertaining to sin that we looked at in the last time where he said, don't think for a second that you're sinless. Because if you think that way, you're lying, you're deceiving yourself. He's writing these things, the things pertaining to pardon and cleansing that we saw in 1 John 1 verse 9. Cleansing that comes as a result of the sacrificial, the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for them. These things I'm writing to you. Why? Purpose clause that you do not sin. That you may not sin. I remember we looked at 1 John 1 verse 9 where John reminds them and commands them, if you confess he is faithful, he is just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But he's writing, he's saying, look, I don't want you to live a life of sin. And the verb that is used here is not referring to an, an habitual sin, that besetting sin that we talk or we see in Hebrews. But it's one singular act of sin. And John is saying, not only don't, do I not want you to habitually sin as believers, but even that one singular act of sin, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't even do that singular act of sin. Keep from sinning is the purpose for John's writing. And of course, you might ask the question, how is this possible? It's impossible. But Well, think of it from this perspective. Can you go a second without sinning? Can you go a minute without sinning? 
Can you go an hour without sin? And I'm hoping your answer is yes, by the way. Uh, I'm hoping that the answer is yes. So I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt here. But can you go an hour? Can you go two hours? You get the drift? So John is saying it is possible, folks, but because of our sinful nature and because we think it's impossible, we sin. But John is, the fact that John mentions this, the fact that John says this is a purpose why I'm writing to you, it means that sinlessness in the life of the believer is possible. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin, so that you renounce sin in your life. Whatever that sin is, whether it's habitual, whether it's that one-off thing, you renounce it. The main outcome of holding worldviews, not just Gnostic worldviews, but worldviews that are anti-biblical and anti-God and anti-Bible, is that it leads to a life of sinning. And that's why John is writing these things to them because of the worldview that they're experiencing and that is all around these churches. And whether this worldview or whether this sin is licentiousness, whether this sin is something that you conjure up in your mind or a distorted view of who Jesus Christ really is, as the Gnostics were teaching, John is saying, I want you to renounce all of that. I want you to renounce all of that. Even though he's refuting these erroneous teachings, at the same time, he's writing to the churches as a means of encouragement. So he's not trying to discourage the believers here. And you can get that from the text that is encouragement, not discouragement that he's promoting. He wants to encourage them in their spiritual walk. He wants them to grow. He wants them to mature. He wants them to look more and more like Jesus Christ in the world in which they live. Hence, again, he's addressing them as a dear father addresses their child or their children. So believers, my charge to you as we enter this new year, if you're thinking, man, I was expecting a New Year's resolution-y sermon. Well, let this be your resolution, believers, that from here on in, whatever sins that you have left behind in 2022, leave them there. And whatever sin that is still wreaking havoc in your life, renounce it. Whatever it is, call it by name or call them by name. Renounce it. Whether it's one that slips up or whether it's one that you habitually are doing. For the unsaved friend, if you're here, you're not saved. You haven't accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. May I encourage you. To renounce the sin that you're clinging so dearly to. Maybe it's, oh, I have time. See, I've, I've lived to see yet another year. I have time. God is going to be merciful to me. So when I am ready, I can surrender my life to him. Folk, friend, our friends. He is merciful, that's why you're here. He is merciful, that's why you're still living and breathing. And his mercy shouldn't be taken for granted. 
So accept salvation while you have life and breath. You don't know, neither believer or unbeliever knows what the future holds. This hour, this minute, this second might be your last. God wants to save you today, not next week, not 2024, not in your timing right now. Accept him. Accept him. Renounce the sin that you're clinging on to in this world, that you think is so delightful and pleasurable, that is taking you away from Jesus Christ. Surrender your lives to him today. As I said a few weeks ago, John was not naive to the fact that, yes, he wants believers to renounce sin completely in their life and live a sinless life. But he's still not naive to the fact that we are human beings. And we are going to sin, unfortunately. Might not be habitually, but we are going to slip up. We are going to falter. We are going to miss that mark. So there is a but clause in the text. And I always love these clauses in the text. It's in Ephesians. You were once dead in your trespasses and sin where you lived according to the, the prince of the power of the air who is working in the sons of disobedience. And if you read the first two verses of Ephesians, you're like, man, alive. That's horrific. But then verse 3 comes and passes, but God, but God. And the same thing we see here, John is not naive. He's saying, look, I want you, this is how I would love to see you as my dear children live. But in the event, since, if you want to use that word, since we are human beings and we are still struggling with that sin nature, if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have, you have an advocate. You have an advocate. So this leads to my second point. Renounce sin first and foremost, but secondly, rely. Rely solely, only on your comforter. Verses, the latter part of verse 1 into verse 2. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with God the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous or the righteous one. He is our propitiation. Big word. I'll break it down for you. I'm sure most of you know what it means anyways, but I'll do it nonetheless. He is our propitiation or is the propitiation for our sins. So for the sins of you believers, but not only for you believers, but for the sins of the entire world. Rely solely on your comforter. John, again, quite conscious of the fact that we don't always measure up. We don't always measure up. We don't always meet the standards. So he adds, if any one of you does sin, there is a solution for that. There is an app for that. 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The general sense is that when we as believers, when you and I lapse into sin, Jesus Christ pleads our case, pleads, pleads our cause in the presence of the Father and assures us, assures us, of course, of the standing that we have before him. But I must add that, yes, he's our advocate and he's, he's making it, pleading our case, but that doesn't negate the fact that we should constantly go back to 1 verse 9, confess, confess, confess. We have an advocate. What does this mean? What does it mean to be, to have an advocate? The word advocate means helper. It means counselor. It means comforter. It means one who encourages. It means one who mediates, one who goes in between. So applying the meaning to the above statement, John is saying, yes, believers, yes, Christian, you can live a life that is sinless. And that is why I'm writing these things to you, both what I've said before and what I'll continue to say throughout the entire three epistles. However, I know that sin is a struggle. I know it's a struggle in our life. We still struggle with that sin nature. So when that does happen, when we do slip up, we have an advocate with the Father. Westmount, you have an advocate. You have an helper. You have one who assists you to get back on the right track when you miss that mark, when you deviate. Westmount, you have one who is your counselor. He guides you back to the right path through his spirit and through his word and through the life that he lives. Westmount, you have one who is an encourager, unlike our adversary. He goes to the Father on a daily basis and says, see, I told you. I told you he would slip up. I told you she would slip up. I told you they would do that. Jesus Christ goes to the Father on our case and our behalf and said, they are covered under the blood. They are my children. I'm advocating for them. They are mine. Yes, I'm not condoning what they're doing. I'm not condoning the sin that they've indulged in. And I'm praying that the spirit that I've left for them will convict them of that sin and lead them to the foot of the cross so they'll confess that sin. But they are mine. They are my child. Folks, that is who we have in our advocate. That is our encourager. That is our helper. That is our counselor. And as a result of this counsel and this encouragement and this help, believers, we can press towards that mark. We can press towards that prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You have a mediator. You have one that goes in between. That's what that word means. The, the God the Father go between, as I call it. So yes, when you slip up, when your adversary says, yes, he's worthless, she's worthless, your mediator steps in to know they are worth, they're worth, they have worth. That's why I died. That's why I went to that cross. That's why I took on humanity. 
because they are worth, they have worth, and they are covered under the blood. They are my children. They belong to me, and nothing will ever change that. Nothing will ever change that. That's your mediator. That should bring comfort and assurance to us. And John, of course, tells us who our advocator is explicitly in the text. Jesus Christ, the righteous, or Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why is he fit to be our advocate, though? Because of his unique relationship with God the Father. That father-son relationship that has always existed, as we saw in the first four verses of 1 John. But not only his unique relationship with God the Father, but also his unique relationship with us as believers. By bearing our nature, we just celebrated Christmas a couple weeks ago, took on humanity. God himself took on flesh, went to that cruel cross in our stead. Because we could never pay the price for sin. He is our advocate because of his sinlessness. And as such, we can enter the presence where no sin is allowed. We can enter the Holy of Holies that was once specifically just for the high priest. We can go boldly before the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.12 reminds us, where we can obtain grace and mercy in times of trouble. The phrase emphasizes the significance of the full deity of Jesus Christ as well as the full humanity of Christ, as we saw earlier in the book. He's our advocate But John uses another big word. He's our propitiation. He's our propitiation. What does this word mean? This means, or this rather is the means of forgiveness. This is an atoning sacrifice, or this is an expiation, or a remedy for defilement. Propitiation would focus on God's view of satisfying sin. In other words, what propitiation means is Jesus Christ satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God by therefore appeasing, turning away the wrath of God that is directed towards those who are sinners and are sinful. That in a nutshell is what propitiation means, appeasing the wrath of God. Jesus Christ did that by going to the cross. Christ satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God by death of a cross. And this makes Jesus Christ both just and justifier. So he is a just God, but he's also the one who justifies us, declares us to be in the right when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for sins. 
Jesus Christ is not like the trapped animals that we read about in Leviticus and that the author of Hebrews reminds us about, which are sacrificed as victims to satisfy a drama of reconciliation. No, Jesus Christ fulfilled that ancient drama. We're told multiple times throughout scripture. He is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. He is the fulfillment of that law. And it wasn't a ceremonial thing. It was the ultimate price that he paid to disarm the foes of darkness. To disarm the power of sin, death, devil, and the grave. Once and for all, how by taking on sin and death upon himself. So why do we need this big propitiation? Why do we need it? Why do we need God's wrath to be appeased? We need it just for the simple fact of what it implies. God, there's wrath of God that is being poured out. Jason went through this Romans chapter 1. That wrath needs to be appeased. That wrath needs to be turned away. And the only way for that to happen is for Jesus Christ to come and sacrifice himself on the cross. And for that wrath to be appeased by God, Jesus Christ had to surrender his life. Jesus Christ had to go to that cross. But folks, we need to surrender to the Jesus Christ. We need to bow our knees if we want that wrath to turn away from us. If we want God's wrath to be appeased. We need to bow our knees and surrender and submit to Jesus Christ. For what he did on the cross for us. The fact that God's wrath is directed towards mankind is the need for propitiation. That is why it needed to be appeased. It's provided by God himself in his substitutionary sacrifice by his son, Jesus Christ. And it is sufficient not only for the believers, but for the sins of the entire world. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to automatically be entered into the kingdom. We know that's not how salvation works. It's sufficient. But for only those who come to call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. Why can John expect believers not to sin? Why does John starts off by saying, I'm writing to you so you don't sin? Because he knows who they can rely on and ought to be relying on. He knows who their help has been throughout the ages. He knows that Jesus Christ is their advocate. He's their helper, helper, their encourager, their mediator. He knows that he's the one who appeased the wrath of God. That's why he can write to believers and say, this is why I know you can live a sinless life. Because of who you rely on. We rely on the one, folks, who is our advocate. 
we rely on the one who has appeased the wrath of God. The one who defeated sin. Defeated it. Not nullified it momentarily, but annihilated it in his death on the cross. Yes, we struggle with it now, but it's defeated. Death, folks, is defeated. The adversary is defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his death, his resurrection, his ascension. These are testament. These are proof to the fact that God was pleased with the sacrifice of his son. We rely on Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John knows we can live that life because of the one who died for us. The one who we serve, the one who is talking about, the one who he proclaims to the world and to the believers. Believers, I encourage you, rely on Jesus. Rest on him. Not only pertaining to sin, but for every aspect of your life. Rely on him. Rely on him. So we renounce sin, we rely on Christ. But we need to remain in God's commandments. Verses 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandment is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus Christ himself walked. Remain in God's commandments. John shows his care and concern for his readers by letting them know why he's writing to them as a concerned father writing to his own children, writing to them, telling them, I'm doing these things. I'm writing all of these things about Jesus Christ so you can live a life, a sinless life. But he is again acknowledging the frailty of humanity in succumbing to sin. He then offers words of comfort to them. If you do sin, you have a mediator. You have one who encourages. You have one who is your helper. He assists you. One who has sufficiently satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God in the sacrifice he made on the cross. And he ends with an appeal in the section that I just read. An appeal of obedience and fellowship. Now these verses, verses 3 to 6, teach, teaches us that there can be no fellowship. And hear this, there can be no fellowship apart from obedience to God's command. No fellowship, whether it's fellowship with God or fellowship with God's people. That fellowship with God expresses itself in heartful surrender to his will and to his word. 
John's heretical opponents claimed that knowledge, whether it's about God or general knowledge, is how you attain a high level of spirituality. Claim that knowledge of God freed men from the obligation of the law or the obligations of the law. But John, on the contrary, teaches that loving obedience to the divine will of Christ, to the divine will of God, is not optional in the believer's life. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. This is the only way to prove that we know. And John uses that word a couple of times in these few verses, know. And again, it's the same word where we get Gnosticism from. Gnosko, meaning to know. Say, oh, you want to prove that you have knowledge? Show me. Show me. How are you going to show me? You keep God's word. You keep God's commandment. You keep God's law. Nothing can take the place of consistent obedience in the life of the believer, in the heart of the believer, and in our conduct. Knowledge of the Bible, orthodox belief, formal acts of worship, all of these are nothing if there isn't, if they aren't under the guise of sincere, heartfelt obedience. What does that mean? We can come to church every Sunday, like clockwork, be here on time from start to finish, come to Bible study and come to every other activity and event. If we are not obeying God's commandments, if we are not obeying God's word, it's ritual. It's vanity. It's futile. It means absolutely nothing than just occupying your time on Sundays and Wednesdays and whenever else you might congregate here. Unless we are obeying God's commandments. It's 1 Samuel that says obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience to God involves submitting to his authority and compliance with his desires and commands. It's both an attitude of the heart and a way of life. It's an attitude of the heart and it's how you live. So it's going to be seen in you regardless if this is how you live. It is a fruit of faith, according to Hebrews 11, verse 8. And it's nurtured by gratitude. Keeping God's commandment is what these verse propel us to do. We can know God, folks. We can know God. Again, Gnostics taught that it's impossible. It's not, it's not possible to truly know God. But John said, we can know God. And we can know that we know God. And this assurance of knowing God and knowing for ourselves that we know God comes again through obedience of his word. That is how we know that we know God. When we're obeying, when we're living a life of obedience. 
The word to know used by John implies progressive knowledge. So it's not a one-off thing where we know this thing and that's it and we let that carry us through the rest of our lives. No, it's a progressive knowledge. We're continuing to grow in our knowledge of God, continuing to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, continue to grow in our knowledge of his word. It's a daily thing. Paul in Philippians 3.10 says what? That I may know him, same word, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable to his death. Folks, if Paul can have that desire and want that desire and longing to know God on a daily basis, how much more can we? How much more should we? So it's a progressive knowledge. So in other words, the more we keep his commandment, the more we know him and the more we know of him. And by default, the more we know him and know of him, guess what? The more we're going to grow in our spiritual walk and the more we're going to live a life that he has called us to live, the more we can say, yes, I'm sinning less and less and less because we know him more and more and more. You see how it works? You see the progression there? Keeping his commandments, which is equated to walking in the light and not sinning, speaks of a practical conformity to God's will. And again, this is an outward conduct as well as an inward disposition. And what's inside is what's going to manifest itself outwardly. He said, keep, remain, abide in God's word, which means to watch over, to be on guard, to obey in full and to fulfill. Keeping God's commandment is and ought to be a pattern of life. And John, when he used this word, we keep his word, we keep his commandment. It's interesting because he talks about not keeping on sinning in chapter 1 and then this singular act of sin in the first few verses that we looked at in chapter 2. But this keeping his commandment is a habitual thing that he's talking about in contrast to habitually sinning. John is saying, Westmount, believers, if you want to develop a habit, how about making a habit of keeping God's word? Instead of habitually sinning, instead of habitually disobeying God and what his commandments are, how about you habitually keep his word, abide in his word, keep his commandment, obey his commandments? John in verse 5 says, abide in his word, keep his commandments. But he also says, keep his word. And for most of us, we see these as the same things. But it's not that John is repeating himself here. I want to remind you of what Jesus said about the word of God. He says, heaven and her earth will pass, but not one jot or tittle. So the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet or a part of a letter, that little comma will not pass away. 
That's the significance of the word of God. So not just the commandments, not just the prophecies, but the very word of God itself. Every jot, every tittle. That is how significant God's word is. And John says, what is the conclusion of the matter? If you live this life, if you renounce sin, if you rely on Jesus Christ, who is your advocate, who is your propitiation, what is the result? If you remain in his word, then you walk like Jesus walked. You live that life as Jesus lived it. You live a life that is pleasing to your heavenly father and pleasing to the world. And even if the world don't, doesn't approve of your godly living, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Because you're not living according to the world's standards. You're living according to the standards of God. John says, if you do these things, folks, this is what you should look like. You walk like Jesus walked in verse 6. The believer must live in a daily relationship with our advocate. We show our love for him. Our love that is fulfilled. Our complete, John says, by obedience. We walk as he walked. We live as he lived. I end with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then I'll add my take to it. Dietrich says, cheap grace is preaching or the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the gospel which must be sought out again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door which a man must knock. Such grace, he says, is costly because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. That's him and his take on cheap grace versus costly grace. Here's my take on cheap Christianity. Cheap Christianity is reveling in the life that you have been redeemed from. Instead of renouncing such a life. Reveling in the life that you've been redeemed from instead of renouncing it. Cheap Christianity is relying on self-helps. Books, celebrities, politicians, personnels, as opposed to relying on the one who intercedes for you. The one who is your guide, the one who is your advocate, the one who is your comforter, the one who is your mediator, the God go-between. Cheap Christianity is reading through your Bible one, two, three, four, however many times a year you mark it, but not letting the Bible read you. I've always told people I couldn't care less if you read through the Bible in a year. 
And I'm not discouraging the reading of God's word. God forbid. I'd rather you take five years to read through the entire Bible to let the word of God permeate your being than just browse through it an entire year and it has no effect whatsoever on your lives. That's cheap Christianity, folks. Cheap Christianity is quoting passages, preaching powerful sermons, so I'm preaching to myself as well. Teaching informative lessons, but not obeying them. Not abiding in them. Not remaining in that very word that you're preaching or teaching or instructing. Cheap Christianity is walking contrary to how Jesus Christ walks. How Jesus Christ commands us to walk. How Jesus Christ tells us to walk. Since he is our help in the ages past, let him, allow him to be your help from here on in. That's costly Christianity. It's relying solely on Jesus Christ. It's letting his word take its root in your lives. It's walking as he walked. Is renouncing the sin that you've been redeemed from. That is cost of Christianity. It's growing and maturing to be more and more like Jesus Christ. That is cost of Christianity. No need for walking lonely anymore. No need for walking in ignorance anymore. No need for walking in a life of sin anymore and sinfulness because Jesus Christ came and he's your advocate. Our help in ages past and, in our, and he's, he'll continue to be our help in the ages to come. Even to the end of the age, he will be your help. Rely on him, folks. Rely on him. Renounce that sin. Remain, abide in the word of God. And you will continue to walk as Jesus walked. Father God, we are so thankful for the reminder in these few passages, few verses, Lord. As we embark on a new year, how we ought to approach and live, not only this year, but our it should have been our very lives since we have accepted Christ. But as a reminder, Lord, that this is how we need to live from here on in. To renounce the sin that you have redeemed us from. To rely solely on the one who, have, who God sent to die in our place. The one who is our advocate, the one who appeased the wrath of God on our behalf. And God, may we, through these things, continue um, to remain and abide in your word. To live the life that you have called us to live. To walk as Jesus Christ walked. Give us your grace, Lord, to live the life that you've called us to. For Christ's sake. Amen.